welcome to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoyed this message by Pastor David Eldridge. Mark 5. So last time we saw Jesus and the disciples, they were in the boat and they were going from one side of the Sea of Galilee to the other side. And today we'll pick up with them landing and who they meet there. They went across, so that's Jesus and the twelve, across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he'd often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones." When this man saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of Jesus. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What's your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we're many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, Send us among the pigs. Allow us to go into them. Jesus gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting to the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. So Jesus, again, he and the disciples are crossing the Sea of Galilee. There's a little map behind me. We don't know exactly where this took place. Best guess is a town called Kersey that no longer exists, but there's some historical evidence uh, about, uh, about this town. It's about two miles from the Sea of Galilee. It's in this region that Mark is talking about. So Jesus and the disciples cross over to this part of the lake. I think it's important, we can't remember this. It was a couple of weeks ago when we were looking at Jesus um, crossing the lake with the disciples. That was when the storm comes up and Jesus calms the storm. We can, it can get lost and there's Jesus says to the disciples, let's go to the other side of the lake. So it's an intentional move by him. And my opinion is that he went to this place on purpose. He had an agenda I don't think he just happened to show up in this particular town, but there's not really any reason that a Jewish man would be in this town. It's, it's three strikes and you're out. It's a Gentile area, Gentile city, which makes it unclean. Jesus is in uh, an area where there are dead bodies. Don't think of, this, of a cemetery. Think more of, of caves. Remember we talked several weeks ago, people get buried more in, or, or entombed in caves more than buried in the ground. So you've got dead bodies, which makes it unclean. You've got a herd of pigs, which makes it unclean. So again, three strikes. No reason for a Jewish man to set foot on this ground because as soon as he does, he becomes unclean. The idea is that uncleanliness is contagious. And so if you touch something unclean, then you become unclean. So Gentile area, dead bodies, and pigs. 
no reason for Jesus to be there. But again, I think he, go, he went there on purpose. And he gets out of the boat and this guy comes who says, we're, we're told he has an impure spirit, which is an understatement. He has an impure spirit and he, and he meets Jesus. A few verses later, we see there's a bit more intensity around the action. He sees Jesus from a long way off and he runs to him and, 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 and kneels before him or kind of throws himself at Jesus' feet. And that word, it, it's a worship word. I don't think this guy was worshiping Jesus, but that's, that's the, the, the background of that word. It means to, to kneel or to prostrate yourself before somebody. It's, it, it's a sign of, of submission. It's a sign of reverence. And again, it can also be an indication of worship, which I don't think that's what's going on here. I, I, I think this guy in a moment of clarity sees Jesus and thinks, maybe he can help me. The demons know exactly who Jesus is. They call him Jesus, the son of the most high God, which is who he is. I think they recognize him immediately. And I think this guy's going, maybe here's someone who can finally help me. And I don't know that anybody in all of the New Testament's in worse shape than this guy. Lazarus was dead. And I think he's in better shape, seriously, than this guy is. Wouldn't you, I would rather be dead this guy, Luke says, it's been a long time since he's lived in a home or worn clothes, so he's naked, and he's living in a graveyard. Who knows what he's eating? He's got to be filthy. He is a terror. People are chaining him hand and foot, and you can say, oh, maybe they're trying to keep him from hurting himself. In Luke, it says they put him under guard. They're not. They're scared of him, and he's so strong, he can break these chains. Again, he's got a a legion is 6,000 Roman soldiers. He doesn't have 6,000 demons in him, but it's a lot going on inside of this guy. And he, he's, he's not, think about what did you do today? Well, I wailed in the tombs and I cut myself with stones. That's what he does every day. And he's a strong man. He could do a lot of damage to himself. Think about that guy coming up to you. If there was going to be a horror movie in the Bible, this is it. If it was set at night, you would be in the movie theater saying, Jesus, don't get off the boat. Don't, don't get off of that boat. And he does it anyway. And then this guy comes running up to him, no clothes on, bruised, bloody, hair all crazy. Again, he's strong. It, that's the guy. I think I'd rather be dead. But he comes to Jesus. I, again, I, you only have two choices. Either the, G, the demons drove this man to Jesus's feet, which could have happened. They may have wanted to pick a fight. They may have thought, oh yeah, we can take him because they knew who he was. Uh, I, I would lean against that because they knew who he was. To call him the son of the most high God, that's a recognition of his power. I think they knew they were overmatched, but maybe not for sure. Again, I think maybe in a moment of clarity, this guy thought maybe this man can help me. He didn't know who Jesus was. He didn't. I mean, Jesus's reputation had um, grown, but nobody's going to the graveyard to tell this guy about him. They're not. He's not picking up a newspaper and reading. I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't know. I think maybe he just, again, whatever, however that works in your own mind when you're infested with demons, I think he has, they know who Jesus is. And so I think he knows who Jesus is and just thinks, well, maybe he can help me. And then he fades out. We don't see him. And the demons step to the forefront. And this Weird conversation. No other place in the Bible when Jesus is engaging with the demon do we see a, a back and forth conversation like this. It's so odd. The demons, are they, they recognize Jesus. There's some thinking that if you know somebody's name, you have power or control over them. So maybe that's why they said his name. I don't know. 
Don't torture us, which is ironic. They've been torturing this guy for a long time. Don't do to us what we're doing to him. Because Jesus said, come out of him. And then he asked for the demon's name. Again, we never see him do that ever, ever. This is the only time we see that. My name is Legion because we're many. Again, a Legion is a Roman unit, 6,000 soldiers. There's a herd of pigs. Hey, let us go into those pigs. Don't send us out of the area. Don't torture us. How do you torture a demon? Do nice things to them. It's like, well, I don't even know what that looks like. In Luke, it says, don't, don't send us to the abyss. In Revelation 20, there's a, there's a description of this place. It's basically like demon jail. It's where they go when they're confined. And maybe that's torture for a demon not being able to wreak havoc in somebody's life. And they're saying, don't send us there. Let us stay here. We got a good thing going. There's this group of pigs. Let us go in the pigs. And Jesus gives them permission to run into this herd of pigs who then promptly run off a cliff and drown themselves in the sea. And, it, it, and if the area where these archaeologists think the town is, is the town, like they ran for a bit. I mean, it was a couple of miles to the edge of the cliff. So they were impelled, compelled to do that. That's not a normal thing. Pigs don't normally drown themselves. And for some people, they're like, time out. Why would he do that? That's mean. The pigs didn't do anything wrong. And somebody lost a lot of money that day. Like somebody owned those pigs. I did a little research. Pigs, 300 to 700 pounds. That's average. 350 a pound. So if you take the low number, 300, today's market price, 350 a pound, that's $2.1 million for that herd of pigs on the low end in today's market. That's a lot of money that just drowned itself in the lake. And Jesus, he didn't do that. I think that's part of it. People are blaming Jesus. He didn't, he didn't run the pigs into the lake. He just gave the demons permission and that's what they did. I think it's a picture of who they are. They, they were gonna do the same thing to the guy. They were just enjoying torturing him for a while before they killed him and that's what they do. I think it's also a validation and affirmation of this man and you see that when the townspeople come. The guys that are hurting the pigs are going, are we going to be responsible for that? You know, so they, they run to town and tell people, you got to see what's happening. The guy, the insane man is now not. Something happened to him and all of the pigs just jumped in the lake. And so the townspeople come out and of course they're scared. I, I think anybody would, would be scared. When you see power on display, if you don't trust the source, it's a really scary thing. They don't know Jesus. You wish, I wish they would have given him a chance to introduce himself, but they don't. But I, I mean, I get it. There was this guy that they couldn't control. They tried to chain him up and he'd break the chains. And now he's seated, seated at Jesus' feet. That's a posture of discipleship, dressed in his right mind. It's a 180. And they're going, what, what just happened? And whatever was in him was strong enough, powerful enough, big enough to run 2,000 pigs off of a cliff and you just beat that thing. So they're scared. Again, they're, they're face to face with real power here and they don't know if they can trust it. They don't give them a chance, but they don't know if they can trust it. Think of all of many of the religions in the world. This is what they're based on. They're based on a power dynamic. Whatever the version of God is, is more powerful than we are but he's not trustworthy. And so we spend a whole bunch of time trying to appease him so that he doesn't wreak havoc in our lives. Christianity is very different. God is all powerful, but he's also all good. You can trust him. 
something we take for granted often. I didn't even think about it really until I read this story. God is all powerful. What if he wasn't all good? You're talking about a terrifying way of living. If he could do anything to us because he's all powerful, if we couldn't trust him to only be at work for his glory and our good. And that's where these guys are. They don't know Jesus. And again, they don't give him a chance to introduce himself. I think that's why he went to the town. I think he was looking to expand his mission a little bit. I think that's why he got on the other side of the boat. And then when they said go home, he was, he just, he said, okay. And I think that's why he sent the guy back. Up until this point in Mark, we'd see him telling everybody to be quiet. Don't tell anybody who I am. And here he's saying, go tell everybody who I am. It's like he, he can't go and introduce himself. So he says, you go and you let him know about me. Of course, the guy wants to go with Jesus. Who wouldn't? But Jesus sends him back to his hometown, says, go to your own people and tell them everything the Lord has done for you. So that's an interesting story. We don't see anything like this in the rest of the Gospels. Every other time when Jesus interacts with a demon, it's, just, it's like that. He casts the demon out and it's gone. Here we've got conversations happening, the things with the pigs. And again, I, the pig thing, I think, is the, it, it is a weird part of the story. I do wonder if it's a sense of affirming this guy. He, he wasn't crazy. He wasn't insane. He had these malevolent beings that were controlling him. And once they were no longer controlling him, look. So I think that may have been a way to help ease him back into community. I think it also shows, again, ultimately what the aim of the demons was, which was to destroy him, which can be instructive for us. We don't necessarily relate to the particulars of this guy. If nothing else, you're all thankfully wearing clothes. And so it's hard for us sometimes to, like, is that just a weird story from 2,000 years ago? How does that necessarily connect to me? Maybe can't relate to the particulars, but I do think in general we see a couple of things. Two things I was thinking about. One, we see the, the, the contrasting job descriptions between Jesus and Satan. John 10, 10, Jesus real succinctly. Here's what, the, here's what the enemy does. He comes to steal and kill and destroy. That's it. That's what he's about. And here's what I'm about. I've come that you'd have life and have it abundantly or have it to the full or have, it in, have more than is necessary. That's what that word means. Not just scraping by, super abundance. Those are the two job descriptions. Satan steals, kills, and destroys. Jesus comes that we would have life and have it Abundantly, those are abstract concepts. What exactly does that mean? This guy's life is a picture. A life that is under the influence or under the control of Satan looks like this if it's played out to the end. In every area of this man's life, the enemy is wreaking havoc. Materially, or we may say financially, the guy doesn't have clothes relationally the guy's been driven into solitary places he's living in a in, in in among the tombs no community at all spiritually he's in bondage mentally and emotionally he's crying out day and night cutting himself with rocks and then we see when Jesus casts the demon out it's a complete reversal it's a 180 everything that the enemy destroyed Jesus restores 1 John 3:8 we read that Jesus comes to destroy the works of the devil. This is what that looks like. In every area where the enemy has wreaked havoc, Jesus brings restoration. He's no longer naked. He's dressed. He's no longer under control of demons. He's seated 
at Jesus' feet, which again is a posture of discipleship. He's sent back home, go to your people. He's actually given purpose as well. And this is what you're gonna do when you get there. He's in his right mind. He's no longer crying out and cutting himself. Again, in every arena of his life, Jesus brings restoration. He reverses the work of the devil. And so like given those pictures, we think, why in the world would anybody, why would anybody choose to align themselves with the enemy if, that, if that's the end? Ultimately, he wants to run you off a cliff and kill you. Like why? why? If you're here this morning and, and you're not following Jesus, this is not to intimidate or to scare. It's just the reality is you're fighting a spiritual enemy, the devil, and he's stronger than you. You're vulnerable. You're exposed. I'm not, you're not possessed, but you are 100% vulnerable to him. And there's, you're not strong enough to beat him. And none of us are. That's not on you. That, none of us are. And, and I would encourage you, if, if that's where you find yourself this morning, reread this story. This is not playing out in your life right now. He's too, he masquerades as an angel of light. He's too subtle for that. For most of us. But this is where it goes. It goes into bondage in your work financial life. It goes into bondage in your relational life, in your spiritual life, in your mental and emotional life. It's no good. And you don't have the resources to fight him. None of us do. We have a Savior who's beaten, just says a word. Like Jesus isn't sweating at the end of this. It's like, whew, that was a hard day's work. There's none of that. It's a no contest. Legion, get out of him. That's it. And the man's life is instantly changed. For those of us who are following Jesus, again, you're not, we're not, you're not gonna be possessed. That's not on the table. The Holy Spirit lives within you. But many of us, Ephesians 4.27, we give the devil a foothold. We create access points in our life where he can, again, not possess, but where he can harass, where he can tempt, where he can torment us. I think it's helpful when you're suffering just to ask the question. We suffer sometimes because of the devil, not all the times. We suffer sometimes because we live in a fallen world. We suffer sometimes because we sin or, or people who are close to us sin and we're experiencing the consequences of those sins. So if you're suffering, I think it's always great just to ask the question. God's more invested in our spiritual growth than we are and just say, is there a, is there a spiritual root here? Like, is this, is this, is this the, just kind of life in a fallen world? Is this a result of sin or is this the enemy? Is he harassing me? And there's ways that we give the devil a foothold. I think of just cracking a door. There are doors that we willingly open and that's when we engage in persistent or consistent sin. I don't think necessarily like a one-off deal, but if there's an area, a pattern of sin in your life and you're continuing or I'm continuing to engage in that, I'm opening the door of my life to the devil. Again, not for him to possess me, that's not going to happen, but absolutely for him to wreak havoc in my life. If you think last week when we were looking at the parable of the soils, these different heart conditions, resistant, shallow, crowded, and good, when I'm opening the door of my life to the devil, I'm basically saying, why don't you can make the, you can, you've got access to do your work in my heart and he's not going to make the soil good. That's not what he's going to do. And so, again, if that's you or if that's me, persistent pattern of sin, we need to repent. But I think there's also doors that get opened that we don't close. The devil doesn't play fair. 
There are no rules for him. He wants to steal and kill and destroy, and he'll take advantage of every circumstance to try to do that, to try to insinuate himself into our life in some way. And so sometimes I think one of the most common doors that we don't close is when somebody hurts us or wrongs us, we don't forgive them. That unforgiveness, that leaves a a crack, that leaves a door to your heart open where the enemy can come and he can sow seeds of bitterness and resentment. I've known people, maybe you have as well, who actually have even, they, because of a lack of forgiveness, like they physically start doing this. They can't stand up straight. The burden that they're carrying, it's real. And so I think that's something to ask the Lord. Is there anyone in my life that I haven't forgiven? That's the Lord's prayer. Forgive us of our sins as we forgive those who sinned against us. God, is there anybody that I'm holding a grudge against? Is there anybody that I need to release? Sometimes for us, we can do an out of sight, out of mind, but we haven't actually forgiven. We've just kind of moved on, and those are not the same thing. And to be clear, we don't have a time to do the whole forgiveness talk this morning. To forgive is not to say, you didn't hurt me, or it's, o- or, or it's okay. That's not what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is to say, I'm not going to hold you in judgment anymore. I'm leaving, the, I'm leaving judgment up to the Lord. It's, to, it's, to, let, it's to, to release or to let go versus continuing to hold tight in judgment. That's a, that's a door we need to close or the enemy will come through. That's not fair. Somebody hurt me. Again, he doesn't play fair. Sometimes I see this, and maybe you do as well, with fear. Something happens. You see this particularly when somebody has maybe a traumatic event happens, and then they get, they get scared. Again, the enemy's not playing fair. You didn't do anything wrong. Maybe something was done to you. It was an accident. I don't know. But in those moments, if, if we're not careful, fear can begin to take root in our heart. We can start pulling back. And so again, we, just, we may want to ask the Lord, is this an area, is this a door that I've opened that I need or that was opened? Maybe you didn't even do it. It was done to you that I need to now close. I don't want to give the enemy access to my heart. One of these that I've seen more recently, as a, not recently, over the last several years, um, as I get older and my peers are older, we have things to grieve. Some of us, our, our parents are dying. Some of us, we're looking at our own life and going, oh, the life that I thought I was going to live is not the life that I am living. And, and sometimes if those griefs are not processed well, that's a door that remains open and it needs to be closed. If, if you don't grieve losses well, that unprocessed grief, it turns bad. It comes out sour. It can make you cynical in addition to some other things. And most of us, when we think grief, we only think about loved ones dying. But any area of loss can be something that needs to be grieved. A dream that maybe you held on to that It's not being fulfilled, and maybe you're going, it's not going to be fulfilled. You need to grieve the loss of that. And again, if we don't, I think that can leave a a crack open, a door open for the enemy. And so again, you don't need to, I don't want to put pressure on you like, man, if I got doors in the enemy, he's going to, you know, don't do that. I would just say again, the, the, the Lord is more invested in your growth than you are and than I am. So let's just ask. God, are there any open doors in my life? Either a door that I've willingly opened and I need to close or a door that was kind of kicked open and I need, to, I need to close that one too, whether I opened it or not. I don't want to give him any access points. Again, read, go back and read Mark 5. That's what he wants to do to you. 
Don't give him any room. None. We'll close with this. I was thinking about this guy, and one of the things that we see in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, one of the things that we see that can encourage us, but it can also frustrate us, is how instantaneously Jesus works. This guy's life on a dime. It's a 180. It, it appears, and I think it probably is, an instant transformation, and it's complete. And that's what we see throughout the Gospels. These snap your fingers, your life is completely changed type encounters. What we see in the gospel, we're seeing snapshots. We're never seeing a video. And so for most of us, our life is a video. It's not snapshots. There's, there's process involved, not just a breakthrough. And so for some of us, that, that can be a little bit frustrating. The process of Jesus working, that it, we kind of want to go speed it up. And sometimes it's, it's hard for us to see progress in the midst of the process. And so we're going to close, and I want to go ahead and close your eyes. I want to give you a couple of things to think about as we go into ministry. If you're on the ministry teams, if you can come up. I want you to think through a couple of grids this morning. One, let's just ask the Lord that really simple question. Are there any open doors in my heart? Those ones I put up there may not resonate with you, and that's okay. Are there any open doors? If something comes to mind, if you know the category, then if it's a sin, you repent. If it's unforgiveness, you forgive. If it's, a, if it's an area of fear, you surrender. It's an area of grief, you acknowledge that and ask the Lord to walk with you through the valley of the shadow of death. And then secondly, I want you to think through this. Maybe a crisis is a negative sounding word, so maybe we'll say breakthrough and process. If you're at a point... I think there's two ways to land on this. One is, for some of us, we lose sight of the power of Jesus. We forget that he can break through, that he can change things in the blink of an eye. And if there's an area where maybe you've kind of said, I guess that's, this just is what it is, I want to give you an opportunity this morning to Ask him to work again in that area. Again, recognizing his power. He's the son of the most high God. He can change a life with one word. And then the other side, the other ditch, is for those of us who are in process. And I I do think this is a normal way that Jesus works. I think he works with us over time because he's trying to form and shape our character. And sometimes that doesn't happen in an instant. It doesn't mean he doesn't work instantly. He does. But he's always invested in the long term. Again, we don't, we don't know what this guy's life looked like as soon as he got back to the village. But there would be a process there of discipleship for him. God's forming and shaping our character. And again, normally that's, that's a process over time.
If you're growing weary in the process, you can think through those categories. Maybe it's something in your work life. We'll put that in that kind of financial material category. Maybe it's something in your relational life, your spiritual life, your mental, emotional life. If you're tired of the process, I want to give you an opportunity this morning just to acknowledge that before the Lord and to re-engage with him in that area. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come and that you would minister to us. Jesus, we want to acknowledge your power. We're so thankful that we, that, that we can trust you to use that incredible power for your glory and our good. And so we ask you to do that. God, I pray for breakthroughs in the lives of the men and women who are in this room today, that you would do more in our life in the next two minutes than we could ask or imagine. Every place where the enemy is stealing and killing and destroying, we pray that with one word, that you would reverse the damage, that you would restore years that the locusts have eaten in the lives of people in this room. And God, I pray you give us grace to walk with you over time as well, to recognize the long-term gradual work that you're doing and not to grow weary in doing well. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. 